Naturally occurring black pigments in vegetables, spices, and seeds have been found to have powerful anti-inflammatory effects. Black for Health liquid extract from Future Farm Botanicals combines the four most powerful of these plant-based foods. Black garlic, black radish root, black peppercorn, and black cumin seed, which I believe to be one of the most promising in its wide range of potential therapeutic applications. It's an all-natural daily preventative against a host of possible inflammatory issues. Black for Health supports your liver, skin, cholesterol, blood pressure, circulation, and immunity. It's a delicious tasting supplement with liposome complex for optimal absorption. Future Farm offers some of the most innovative products I've seen in quite a while. For more information and to order, call 888-841-7216, 888-841-7216, or go to myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. That's myfuturephafm, myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. Black for Health is all natural science-based and works without adverse side effects. Myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. Welcome back to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. We're talking about pain, and we're talking about a revolutionary technique that addresses pain without surgery, without manipulation, without injections, without acupuncture, without, uh, well, basically, without physical methods. It's the method that was pioneered by Dr. John Sarno, who was uh, a professor emeritus, uh, and for a long time at NYU Langone's Rusk Rehabilitation, uh, he pioneered a method that he explained in several of his books. By the way, Dr. Sarno was a guest on my program uh, in the 1990s. Yeah, I've been broadcasting for a long time. And uh, he talked about his book, uh, Healing Back Pain. And uh, another of his books, I think one of his books was called The Divided Mind. Was that the uh, correct title? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. That was the last book in 2006, and I and other um, uh, colleagues also contributed a chapter in that as well. Oh, great. Okay, so, uh, you know, essentially, uh, just outline the premise once again, is you know, why uh, are sometimes all these interventions uh, futile, expensive, counterproductive, uh, when a simpler paradigm really should be adopted? I guess maybe it's not successful because maybe two reasons. One, maybe they're not sort of addressing the root problem of this. And maybe sometimes when they get some relief, it might be more of a placebo reaction than anything else. But I think the main reason is maybe they're not really addressing the root cause. Right. And the root cause being um, essentially psychosomatic, right? I mean, we have to call it that because this is uh, a form of psychosomatic intervention. Right. So psychosomatic has a pejorative term. Yeah. um, But I think it's not. So actually, I often mention, you know, Sir William Osler. Sir William Osler, very famous doctor, the father of modern medicine. He also is the father of psychosomatic medicine. And also in my lectures, there was a Medscape survey from 2016, the 50 most influential physicians in the history of the planet Earth. And who was number one? Osler. He actually beat out Hippocrates. So I tell my patients, if the most influential physician in the history of the planet Earth by a survey was the father of psychosomatic medicine, that physicians and lay people should sort of stand up and take notice. Indeed. So what his take on it was that this is uh, a lot of people think it is pejorative because, you know, if, if you say, well, it's all in your head. 
boy, that's dismissive. That's like, oh, you know, you're just imagining it, you know, get over it. Um, and uh, it, it sort of puts the onus on the patient, like, you know, you know, manage, manage your distress. I can't help you. That that's what the connotation is when you say psychosomatic. But psychosomatic problems can be addressed through a process, such as Dr. Sarno's. Right. So in the office, when I make the diagnosis of tension malneural syndrome, I do my best to be as empathetic with the patient as possible because I don't know the percentage of patients, but all too often these patients will say they've gone to other doctors and they say it's all in your head, yeah. this, that, and the other thing. And I try to sort of say, it's nothing, it's not your fault. It's basically, this is something that's universal. And through our system, we may be able to help you improve your level of symptoms, but hopefully eliminate it if possible. Could, could it, is it a proper analogy that it's like getting into a bad golf swing or a bad tennis uh, swing, which can happen? You know, you get in a rut and a, a neural circuit is created that gets reinforced and amplified. And we need to break that vicious cycle uh, so that people can undo the pain circuitry. Is that an apt analogy? Yeah, I think so. That's what's going on. I also consider, not to be funny, I consider myself as a doctor sort of like um, a good mother at an old birthday party when people <laughs> play pin the tail on the donkey. I say, this is where the donkey is, where, where it is. So again, people are sort of like blindfolded, sort of like in the wilderness. Yep. And I say, this is where the donkey is. So that's why I think try to make the connection. Yeah, Right. But then it is still uh, the, res the patient's responsibility to do some of the work to uncover the blockages, the traumas, the you know the anxiety. I mean, look, our right. language is permeated with this. We we talk about people who are a, a pain in the you know what, uh, pain in the neck, pain in the in the a. Uh, it literally we do somaticize tension in our bodies all the time, right? Exactly. And I meant that all the time. So often in my treatment lectures, I say, do you ever have an expression that there's something's a pain in the back? It's usually a pain in the neck or a pain in the butt. So that's yeah. usually kind of a commonness of where the symptoms are. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so, uh, the, so in, in, uh, telling patients about this, um, one of the things that happens when people are in pain, and I've experienced this, is they're told to just stop activity. You know, uh, you got, and I've had bouts of back pain. Uh, I'm much better now, but I, in, in my 20s and 30s, I had serious bouts of back pain, and the solution was just to to just lie abed, you know, take to bed, rest, bed rest, bed rest, you know, take you know painkillers. Why is that not considered advisable under the Sarno paradigm? Good. A few thoughts about these things. Back in 1986, Richard Dayo and colleagues at the New England Journal of Medicine they published an article that's saying that bed rest for more than seven days is not as good as like bed rest for two days or less. So this was sort of the new the New England General Medicine article that's saying that bed rest is a little bit little a little bit sort of not the best practice for these things. The second thought is also a very famous physiatrist uh, who we have worked at the NIH. He used to say bed rest is the enemy of the people. And Dr. Sarno was very, very 
very serious about being as physically as possible. He said, the back is the strongest part of the body. And I've had multiple stories of patients who said, just have to be as physically active as you can be. And I also recommend that. But also I say to them, be kind to yourself. If you're being physically active and you have sort of an uptick in your symptoms, don't feel sorry for yourself. I mean, just sort of, you know, take it easy and just sort of fight the battle the next day. And it may, there may even be secondary gain associated with being debilitated. It, it, and, you know, uh, we have a very elaborate disability system in this country. There's secondary gain to being disabled. There's also the sympathy factor. There's also the ability to withdraw from normal activities, which sometimes provides people with secondary gain for a chronic pain syndrome. Yes, I know it's secondary gain, but Dr. Sarno, when he wrote, he said he didn't think it was, I mean more so primary gain than secondary gain, that type of thing. I think secondary gain is a little bit more and more in the workers' comp field than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. yeah. Kind of like the movie The Fortune Cookie, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you, you were, you've been around on the rehab scene for a long time, and you worked at Rusk. Um, what was the reaction of many of Dr. Sarno's colleagues to this heretical set of beliefs. I mean, this really goes against the grain. And not only that, but it kind of attacks the economic interests of uh, physicians who are, who perform surgery for a living. Correct. So back when I was a resident and early attending, they, um, they were not big fans of this. But interestingly, one of the reasons that I think back to the early, back to the beginning of the podcast was that at Journal Club, sometimes when the, we presented, the residents presented the article about back pain, sometimes the chair of the vice chair said, maybe just go see John Sarno type of thing. I said, what is this John Sarno guy? I mean, right. so they had a little bit of sort of like a back a backhand compliment uh, to these things. But again, I'm also going to give a shout out to Steve Flanagan, Stephen Flanagan. He's the new chair of Rusk for many, many years. And to his credit, he's actually a very big fan of the work that I do. So I really kind of give him a shout out because he really appreciates the value that we do to our patients. Right. Well, obviously, you need support from your colleagues because uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's actually daring, I think, for a doctor to refer uh, patients to this kind of therapy because, it, I mean, the standard of care is a set of procedures which ultimately take you to, you know, one or another outcomes, you know, physical therapy. If that doesn't work, then you go to some kind of corrective surgery. So, let you know, we talked a lot about low back pain. What are some of the other applications of this uh, technique? I mean, it's certainly, you know, pain is ubiquitous. There are many painful syndromes. Uh, what other sim- uh, syndromes are amenable to this approach? Yes, in addition to low back pain and neck pain, the next thing we do is basically sort of like joint pain and sort of like knee pain or shoulder pain and hip pain. And just to put in the context of this is the 1994 New England Journal of Medicine article about the high prevalence of structural abnormalities in asymptomatic people. Over the next maybe 20 years, they said, well, let's do something else. Let's look at a bunch of asymptomatic hips, asymptomatic knees asymptomatic shoulders with either MRI or ultrasound, and basically a similar conclusion came on Mm -hmm. that even in asymptomatic individuals, a lot of these sort of structural changes in the joints are interesting. A couple of points about this is back um, as far as hip label tears, as recently as 2012 in the American Journal of Sports Medicine, they had found that actually in asymptomatic hips, 
about 69% of these asymptomatic hips had hip label tears. Oh. And also you may have heard about this several years ago, back in like December 2013, out of Finland, they did sort of a placebo surgery out of Finland between medial meniscal tears. Um, they had real surgery, fake surgery, and the outcome was no significance. So some wow. cases, these knee meniscal tears are really not all that a symptom generator. So, so essentially, a placebo surgery means they, they put like a little incision in there. I guess they put you under anesthesia yeah. if you're getting surgery. <laughs> yeah. And they don't do anything. And then, you know, you, you come out of it saying, well, oh, I'm fixed. And, and that kind of works. Right. And that was, in, that was in the New England Journal of Medicine about the day after Christmas 2013. And again, I think the orthopedic surgeons were not happy about that. <laughs> but again, take, take it for what it's worth. So, um, other thing to go ahead. Okay, again, no. the other thing is that um, Dr. Sarno came up with something called equivalence. Equivalence are sort of like close relatives of TMS, yep. things that involve other types of organ systems. The most common things that I'm seeing in my practice are sort of digestive systems, symptoms like sort of like irritable bowel syndrome. Also, a growth area in my practice is sort of like pelvic floor pain, the GU, the GU systems. And also, um, someone from uh, from Wild Cornell and ENT, he actually refers me to someone with sort of like tinnitus and things like that. And interestingly, like the the, uh, the the pathophysiology of tinnitus and sometimes hearing loss is sort of like a decreased blood flow hmm. to the, the 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 lining of the ears, and also sometimes a tight tense muscle in the neck can cause tinnitus. So. Uh, fortunately, with my approach, ruling all sorts of serious structural pathologies, whether it's a GI symptom, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, um, um, pelvic floor pain, um, ear symptoms, usually it does, my patients do very well. Wow. What about headaches and migraines? Exactly. Definitely. Yeah, headaches and migraines are also a very common thing. And also, the headaches is probably the most common neurological symptom on the planet Earth. And migraines are close second behind that type of thing. And basically, most of these headaches are basically called cervical genic headaches type of thing. And it's basically due to sort of like these tight, tense muscles. Yeah. Actually, the, the genesis of headaches is actually not as far, not high up as you think it is. It's usually sort of like at the, the upper part of your neck by the sort of like the um, uh, upper trapezius muscles, sternocleidomastoids, all sorts of things. The other thing, too, actually is something called a TMJ. Yeah. Central mandibular joint sure. syndrome is sort of a tight, tense muscle by your masseter muscle and other things. And those things can be very helpful, too. So, you know, hearing this, can can patients DIY this? You know, it's like, OK, uh, I'm listening to this podcast. I mean, uh, this sounds good. I'm going to I'm going to ignore my pain. I'm going to delve into what possible uh, tensions are in my life. I'll meditate. I'll relax. Or does it require an intervention by an experienced practitioner like you, well, I guess, first of all, to rule out serious pathology, but secondly, to administer the the, uh, the therapy. Right. That's a very good question. My sense would be to just sort of play it safe, just to reach out to uh, an experienced physician to rule out any kind of serious uh, diseases type of thing, because always TMS is always a diagnosis of exclusion. You have to make sure that you rule out any kind of serious medical issues, and once you ascertain that there's nothing seriously going on, then the default mode is that it's probably psychosomatic and TMS, and if that's the case, uh, people can sort of read Dr. Sarno's book sort of like a DIY, 
Or if you want to take advantage of what my program has to offer, I could offer a program for them. Right. And do you, in screening patients, because Dr. Sarno, you said, had an effective way of screening patients. Do you screen out patients who come to you with uh, an, perhaps an intense degree of resistance or skepticism? Is that a disqualifier in terms of the likelihood of success? I'll answer that in two ways. One way is, unfortunately, through the faculty group practice, I don't have the ability to pre-screen my prospective patients. So because of this, my diagnostic rate is not as high as Dr. Sarno's. Mm -hmm. My diagnostic rate is about 80%. Other people come to me with all sorts of things. But the answer to your other question, Dr. Hoffman, is that usually since patients know who I do, what I do, I don't really get that same resistance that other doctors do because they, I kind of know that I'm sort of like the TMS doctor in New York City and the resistance really isn't all that great. And usually back in the day before yep. I was a little bit more popular, I wouldn't try to proselytize TMS yep. because back in the day in the early 90s, it would come with a lot of resistance and I said, I don't really want to go there. So again, that's why we really wouldn't want to proselytize TMS on these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, uh, where the rubber meets the road, Evidence, because, you know, you have a practice, you see a lot of people and you, you know, relieve a lot of problems. And anecdotally, I will tell you that there's uh, evidence that this really works. I've experienced it with several of my patients who've undergone the process. Uh, but have there been studies? Do studies actually validate this with a high rate of success? Yes. So as of 2018, I've actually started to, since I no longer take care of inpatients at Rusk Institute, I actually started to develop a database. So I've I've been involved in two retrospective chart reviews, one in 2018, one in 2019. I'm also starting through the IRB to do the chart reviews for 2021. So the data that I have is that my success rate is actually very, very good with these sorts of things. Um, In more peer-reviewed types of things, um, there was an article that came out of JAMA Psychiatry back in, I think, um, 2021, sometime in the summer or the fall. They discussed treatment of similar types of disorders uh, through sort of like an, a small eight-session eight psychology session versus usual care and versus sort of a placebo kind of uh, saline injection to the low back. But this is for patients who had uh, low back pain intensity of around uh, been between 4.1 and 4.5. So it was sort of a moderate pain. It wasn't severe pain. So their results were good. They also were able to do sort of like fMRI studies. So the results were actually quite good. So in the academics, they have things. I'm also kind of trying to do more things to publish for journals. Okay. So, so there is a, uh uh, validation for this. Is there increasing acceptance of this paradigm or are we still, you know, bucking the tide of resistance? You know, that's a good question because I'm sort of like in an ivory tower, so I'm not quite sure what degree this is. The answer to your question is maybe kind of sort of mm-hmm. because about a few years ago, the New York Society of Physical Medicine Rehabilitation asked me to do a talk on TMS type of thing. But, you know, Based upon the 2016 JAMA article about how severe, $134.5 billion, I'm not so sure how optimistic I am, but I'm hoping that with more outcome studies and better research data, you know, 
it might be better, but again, you know, you talked about things earlier, how, how, um, how robust the back pain industry is. Yeah. It, it, it really threatens the paradigm and, uh, you know, uh, there, there's definitely going to be resistance. People are not going to want to give ground. And, you know, and clearly for every medical procedure that's overused, uh, there is a core of patients for whom it is extremely appropriate and just the right recipe. It just may be that some of these procedures are overused and, and perhaps misguided given the really underlying cause. Uh, what about patients who are on pain medications? Do they have to go cold turkey on their pain meds uh, when they're undergoing this? Because some patients are, you know, pretty tanked up. Yes. So one of the most common misconceptions is that sometimes doctors say you don't have to take pain medication. That's not true at all. I would recommend continuing with the pain medication. But again, I would rather if possible, kind of wean off the opioids because we've known over the last five, six years, not because of the opioid crisis per se, that opioids for chronic back pain and neck pain really isn't the best options. Interestingly, there was an article in The Economist back in January 2020 called The Burden of Back Pain, which is a very good article. And they talked about how opioids doesn't have much better than options such as ibuprofen. So you can certainly take the, the pain medication. I would rather not do sort of non-steroidals because of potential GI potential toxicity. Right. My favorite analgesic would be sort of acetaminophen. Mm -hmm. uh, even generic is fine. I would recommend basically just doing sort of like a thousand milligrams up to three times a day as long as your primary care provider, she or he approves it as long as you don't have any kind of hepatotoxicity or right. things like that. But again, the thing is that you don't have to go cold turkey. You have to bite the bullet right. when you go in this method. Whatever you can do to just kind of pain medication to make it more tolerable is totally okay. Is there a possibility that uh, heavy pain medication, in fact, reinforces the pain cycle? Because as you withdraw from the medication, uh, the pain... Uh, invokes uh, a restoration of your of your blood levels of whatever addictive medication you're on. I think the answer is yes. I think that is a very good point that it can actually reinforce it. Yeah. So because uh, you know, to the extent that it ameliorates pain, the pain comes back. It's like time to take your next. And I hate to use the colloquial, but you're getting your your fix. For the pain, and it really is sometimes hard uh, to tape. Let me tell you a little bit of an anecdote. Sure, please. Sorry about that, Dr. Hoffman. About Dr. Sarno, he actually was, he wasn't an infrequent prescriber of opioids, but he would say to me, Ira, in about 80% of cases, it wasn't really helpful, but he just said it just made, it made the patient so dopey that he didn't care about the pain so much. That was from Sarno himself. He said that at least in 80% of cases, it wasn't all that helpful, but the patient said it was make them so dopey that it was going to take the mind off the pain. Okay. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So when it comes to practitioners who do this, I mean, you are uh, had a, a personal relationship, a discipleship of sorts with... Uh, Dr. Sarno, direct experience. Uh, is there a network of physicians across the country who are trained in this or certified in this? Is, is that something that's maintained or do some doctors just profess a passing acquaintance with us and then offer it in their practices? Well, to answer your question, Dr. Hoffman, is that there, I'm not sure there's something called like a practitioner, um, a practitioner list 
from the sort of the PPDA, the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association of this. But again, I'm not quite sure which practitioners, I'm not quite sure how how competent these people are mm-hmm. type of thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, for people sort of like in California, there's, there's a guy named David Schechter who actually spent about a little over a year, maybe a couple of years studying with Dr. Sarno back in the 1980s when he was a medical student here at, at NYU, uh, now Grossman School of Medicine. So he's very qualified for people out in California to take care of uh, TMS patients also in um, in Washington, D.C., something called um, Andrea Leonard Segal, also um, a, a rheumatologist with George Washington uh, University School of Medicine. Um, also, a couple other patients, other doctors spent time with him. Someone, um, someone in in uh, in Northwestern called John Strax. He he spent a couple of days with Dr. Sarno, so I think he takes care of patients and also. Another doctor out in Detroit named Howard Schubiner, who also has been doing the research on TMS and also is um, writing books about TMS in so many words. So both Dr. Schubiner, Dr. Um, Strax spent a couple of days with Dr. Sarno back in the day. So it it sounds like they're few and far between. It's uh, that, you know, that right. that right. It's, it's not an organized effort. It's not like there's a uh, a society yeah. or a uh, some sort of certification process for proficiency in this technique. So, what's a good starting point for someone who wants to do a deeper dive on this? Uh, Sarno's books. Uh, is there a website? Uh, yeah. Where can they find out more? Yes. So, um, for um, for books, I would recommend I'd recommend basically the Divided Mind, um, and then the Mind Body Prescription healing back pain. I also do have a website, sort of irarashbaummd.com, um, about that sort of thing. If you want to sort of talk to me about these sorts of things and, um, and potentially have an appointment and, 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 and Sue and, and, and for as far as my TMS appointments, I actually, I accept insurance for pretty much everything. So you can sort of, whether telemedicine or sort of in the office, you can certainly reach out to me. And in most cases, um, insurance will cover the um, uh, c- cover the cost, maybe minus a copay. Well, that, that's really great. And, and look, I must commend you because uh, when you have these uh, uh, eccentric geniuses, because I, I think there was an eccentricity to this approach, uh, and the the mover and shaker behind these therapies passes away. And by the way, uh, Dr. Sarno lived a long life. He died in his 90s, I believe. Uh, sometimes yeah. this is kind of lost to posterity. And the fact that you have uh, uh, maintained the legacy, I think, is just an incredible boon to so many patients out there that can be helped via this method. So uh, kudos to you for uh, uh, taking the leap, because I think as a, as a young physician, um, from a professional standpoint, from a career standpoint, that was a risky move. But uh, you stuck to your guns, yeah. and here you are, and you're offering um, a very plausible uh, approach in a, in, a, in a sane setting, in a setting where people with bona fide structural problems, problems that really do require uh, intensive medical interventions, uh, won't be missed. So you can be sure that we're not just going to say, oh, you know, it's all in your head when there actually is a uh, a serious underlying structural problem. So I think that's yep. the best of both worlds. You really uh, yep. encompass that. So great stuff. Uh, Dr. Rashbaum's last name is 
spelled R-A-S-H-B-A-U-M, first name Ira, uh, here uh, in New York at uh, NYU Rusk. Uh, thanks very much for joining us today. Just a really exciting uh, podcast, and I think it'll be of help to a lot of people. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. I had a blast. It was great. Thank you. Okay, I did too. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. Reinvest in your wellness goals this spring with savings on supplements. March 29th and 30th only, I'll be offering 10% off all products in my online full script supplement dispensary, drhoffmanstore.com. March 29th and 30th, two days only, get 10% off and free shipping on my entire inventory of top supplements at drhoffmanstore.com. We stock only the highest quality supplements, some of which are very hard to find elsewhere. The very same supplements I prescribe to my patients and take myself. It's the safest and most convenient way to purchase my curated supplements. Buying through Fullscript offers fast, free shipping and optional refill. Reminders via text or email as well. It's safe, secure, and includes world-class customer service. Just go to DearHoffmanStore.com for 10% off and free shipping for two days only, March 29th and 30th. That's DearHoffmanStore.com. DearHoffmanStore.com.